0: If you're new with us, you're probably like, you know, what's the deal here? What's up with this church? Uh, And we're just really casual, right? We're like, well, people are having conversation and meeting in the cafe, and we like that. Because I so appreciate, and I was actually, I'm going to talk about it, my message today. I didn't plan this with Jeremy and Brad, but that last song, I Love You, Lord, and Brad says, God is interested in relationship. And that's one of the themes of our message day. We didn't plan that, but it's really true. And when we look at the scripture and we look at who God is, we go, wow, God is really interested. He is really interested in relationship with you, with me, with every single one of us. He's interested in that. And that's what it's about. And we've been going through Romans. And in Romans, we really see how God is, God is all-powerful and all-loving and amazing And yet he's created us. And he's created us not just, not as robots, or not as just this little, you know, creation, these little hamsters on a wheel or anything like that. He's created us with the ability to choose him or choose otherwise. And we get to that. Paul gets us, the Apostle Paul gets us to that right here at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into our message. And just, I'm just trusting the Lord's got something for us here today. So God... We come before you again this morning. And Lord, if anybody out here in the audience is like me, that song we sang earlier, I will climb this mountain with my hands wide open. God, that resonates with me. I'm sure it resonates with others right here in the audience. God, I think about um, how my week was. God, even this morning, I was just praying, Lord, and I was thinking about how my year has been. And I feel like it has been a climb and a climb. And it's hard work. And it can be lonely and it can be sad and it can be frustrating and it can be hard. And yet, God, I'm going to climb the mountain, Lord, and we are going to climb whatever mountain it is that we're facing in our life. We're going to climb it because you love us. And because you're with us, and because we're going to learn today, we're going to see right here in Romans 9 and 10 that you have provided the opportunity for us to have relationship with you. You, the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, outside of space and time, God, have created a way for us to have relationship with you. And so God, wherever each one of us is at this morning... Whatever we're thinking about and whatever is on our minds and our hearts and in front of us today, help us to hear, not from me, but from you, God. And from your scripture. And God, I pray that there would be something that would resonate with each one of us, that we would walk out of here better, closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen. Alright, well we'll give a little bit of review from last week's message. Um, Let's see. Click it for me, there, Dale. Uh, Chapter nine. There's a couple of points that we talked about last week that I thought I would just go ahead and review for us. Man, is it gonna? We gonna have to click this, Dale. There we go. All right. First one. God loves the world, not just a select group of people. Isn't that good news? God is not just this God He's like, well, I like that group of people and not everybody else. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God loves the world, not just a select group of people. And we were looking at Romans, and Paul was talking to the Jews, and the Jews were like, hey, we thought we were God's chosen people. We thought we were the people that God loved. And Paul said, no, God loves the world. And God has made the ability for us to choose him in the way that he's chosen us. And he explains that right there. God's promise and power is extended to Abraham's spiritual children, not his physical children. Right, Because these people were walking around and they were going, hey, I'm a physical descendant of Abraham. I can trace my lineage right back up. And see, I, I think God promised that his, this line would extend and we would have the blessing and the choosing, choosing of God. And Paul goes, no, that's not actually what it says. God didn't actually say that. That's not the promise God made. God's promise was to the spiritual children, those who would have faith, in the same way that Abraham had faith and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Not his birth, not his lineage, not because of who he was. It was because of his faith. So did God break his promise to the nation of Israel? He did not. We talked about that last week. the promise was spiritual, not physical. And so today, we're going to move on to the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, which is maybe a little bit bigger of a chunk than we might normally have be doing in this series. But it all fits together. That's why we're doing it here. And so Paul answers the next question. So the believers would go, okay, so God has got these spiritual children, so now we look at Israel. We look from God and we turn back to Israel and say, why did the nation of Israel, why did the Jews choose to reject the Messiah? See, it's easy to see the root of the question when you sort of understand the context, right? And we've been talking about this, that there they were in Rome and there was Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians are going, well, ah, they're kind of struggling with this, and they're going, We thought the Jews were the chosen people. And so you could see sort of the root of this question. They're going, Wow, well, all these people in Israel and all the leaders and all this stuff, they've rejected Jesus. And they go, I don't get it. I'm a Jew, and Paul, you're a Jew. What's up with our brethren? What's up with them? Why aren't they? We get it. The gospel makes sense to me. How come the rest of the Jews don't come running to it? Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. He came as the Messiah. I see it. It works. I understand. Why can't they see it? Right? And yet we come face to face with this today. This is not just a, oh, a Jewish thing. It's with a lot of people. But we can see I don't know if any of you interact with people who are Jewish. I, I have some friends who are. And my interactions with them have been very interesting. Sometimes they'll say things to me like, I don't understand how you can have three gods. <laughs> and it's not really an I don't understand. It's, it's I reject you <laughs> because I think you have three gods. Which of course we don't have three gods. But there's a sort of this rejection there. There's been had this other opportunity uh, in the architecture firm that I, I work in part-time. Uh, I've, I've been asked a number of times to pray at company events, pray before meals and, and that sort of thing. And there's one uh, person in particular who's Jewish and every time he knows I'm going to pray he comes up to me every single time and he says, when you pray please don't mention Jesus, just mention the Father. <laughs> It was very interesting, right? And I love this guy. He's, he's a good friend of mine. He's, he's a, a sweet man. Um, but I can be left with that feeling, and I know if any of you kind of have that interaction with people, you kind of left with that feeling of, why, why are you so offended about Jesus? Right? Why are you so offended about Jesus? Let's just look at who Jesus was. And almost everybody would say, yeah, he was a good teacher. He was a good man. He had good things to say. He was a nice guy. He walked around. He was very sweet. His messages were great. Why are you so offended by Jesus? And that's kind of the question they're asking there in Rome. Why, why, do they, why are they so offended? Why do they reject him? Well, Paul gives us an answer, and so we're going to read through the passage today. There's going to be a number of slides, against it's a little longer passage. It's on the screen. You can follow along uh, in your Bible if you want. I'll just read it, <clears throat> because it's good to read the word. Paul says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, "Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard indeed, they have for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world, but I ask, did not did Israel not understand first? Moses says, "I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, "I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me." But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so there's the passage. And I think there's obviously a lot going on here in this passage. But I think we can look at here Paul answering that question, why did the Jews reject Jesus the Messiah? And he really gives us three points. He gives us three answers to that question. The first one is this. They pursued God not by faith, but by good works. You see in the verse, verses 32 and 33 of chapter 9. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And it goes on to say there that Jesus is a stumbling stone. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who is the stumbling stone? Jesus. Well, what in the world is that? (laughs) Right? What is a stumbling stone? I have a little picture I don't know if that's really what a, I think that's kind of what a stumbling stone is like a stone that's in the way like generally it means a stone or an impediment in a path over which people will trip and fall right? it's very simple a stumbling stone right and in this case in this passage it means the obstacle which prevented these people the jews in this case from attaining the righteousness of faith and this stumbling stone was the occasion of their fall of their rejection and their ruin See, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, No one comes to the Father except by me. No one comes to the Father except by me. No one comes to the Father except by me. Uh, There's no exceptions to that, is there? That's it. No one comes to the Father except by Jesus. Right? And so, if you're you're like me, if you think about stumbling stones, and I think about, I love to go hiking, Right, and I, I sometimes you're hiking along a trail, and there's like a rock, and you go whoop, and you fall. Especially when you're going down the hill. <laughs> At the end of the day, anybody ever do that? Maybe it's just me, and I'm clumsy. I don't know. But that's what happens, right? And so I go, a stumbling stone doesn't seem like a good thing, right? How, why would we say Jesus is a stumbling stone? He's like, we're going to stumble over him and get hurt and skin our knee. That doesn't sound good to me. But that's not, I think, what it's talking about here. Because see, the Jews were on a path, right? They were on a path of good works. They were pursuing God not by faith but by good works. But Jesus says no one can come to the Father except by me and we see in this passage that righteousness is by faith and so they were on a path of good works and that path was headed straight to destruction. And so you go, wow, in that case a stumbling stone that kind of whoop, like whoop pops out, you go, hey, that thing sort of jumped out and tripped me. That's a good thing. Because it would trip you and knock you off of that path that heads you towards destruction. You go, what did I trip on? Oh, that. I tripped on that. That's what that changed my life. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about a stumbling stone. Jesus is a good stumbling stone in them that's knocking them off of a bad path. Now, see, I think we can look at this and say, oh, it the Jews, and you know, was the Jews, and they had their thing. But I, I think that, generally speaking, I really believe... People are really just, they really want to just be interested in good works. Do you guys agree with that? Do you agree with me? People just want to be interested in good works. And I think that's fine, right? We kind of go, oh yeah, it's good. It's good to have good works. Like, what's wrong with with good works? But there's a problem with good works. And the problem with good works is that when you really understand what the Bible is pointing out about our lives and our hearts is that we have this underlying condition of sin that's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's this brokenness that goes deep into our core and we're separated from God. And good works don't fix that. It's kind of like if you, if you have skin cancer, and this is kind of gross, and you've got can, like a cancerous sort of lesion on your skin, and it's bleeding, and you go, well, I'll just slap a Band-Aid on that. Hey, look, it's not bleeding anymore. You didn't really fix the problem. Or does anybody have mold in their house? No, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to <laughs> admit that you got mold in your house. I, I don't have any in mind that I know of, right? Unfortunately, it's Colorado. We don't really have a problem with that. But if you have mold growing on the wall, and you go, I'll just slap some paint on that, it generally doesn't take care of the mold. Right, there's mold in the wall cavity. I'll just put some wallboard over it and call it good. You didn't really deal with the problem. And this is something that's common to, like, all of us, right? It's not just to the Jews. So the Jews weren't really unique in this regard. But they were very zealous. They're very zealous in their pursuit of good works. And that's the next point that Paul makes. They were zealous for the wrong reasons. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10, he says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They did not submit to God's righteousness. But what is zeal? I feel like zeal is one of those words where, if you like think about it and you write it down, and you know, or you you put it in Microsoft Word, and you're like, kind of change the font on that. And you keep seeing, you're like, that is a weird looking word, right? It starts with a Z. We don't have too many Z words in our language. But what is zeal? It's great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or objective. Well, it doesn't sound bad. Great energy. Great enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause, an objective? What's wrong with zeal? There's nothing wrong with zeal. That sounds really good, right? That's like the opposite of laziness, right? And we all go, yeah, laziness is bad. We're Americans. Laziness is a bad thing. We don't want to be lazy. We've got to be, you know, working hard. And it can be good there. you got that Galatians 4.18. Paul says, it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. Provided the purpose is good, and so to be always, not just when I'm with you. See, there's a problem there. Without knowledge, zeal is not good, is it? Right? We ought to know that better. Picture the guy punching his computer screen. You've probably felt that way. Sometimes if you look at social media, and maybe you've engaged in that yourself, or maybe I have too, In social media, that whole idea of, like, how many times is there, like, a falsehood that gets spread on social media, and you're like, you have no knowledge of what you're talking about, but you're really zealous for something of which you have no knowledge, and it's like fake news or whatever they want to call it, right? And you go, oh, there's all this zeal out there, but there's not enough knowledge to back it up. And that's what Paul is saying. They had a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge of who they were. Well, what were they zealous for? In Romans 9, we, we saw that. Last week we looked at it. He said, They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. All this stuff. And they're really excited and really zealous about the stuff. They're really excited and zealous about the religion. They're really excited and zealous about doing things. But what does God want? What does God want? God wants relationship. God wants relationship. We see it in Jeremiah 32, 38. They will be my people and I will be their God. It's all about relationship. I found this picture. It kind of was striking to me. And I don't know, maybe you think the the idea of Jesus in a white robe is kind of cheesy. And that's fine. But this idea of Jesus sitting next to you on a bench and having a conversation and having a relationship with you as a picture of who God is and what he wants in your life and what he wants with you and with me they will be my people and I will be their God and so the Jews weren't after that they weren't after relationship they were after doing stuff and so many of us and so many people in our world are after doing stuff and so that leads to Paul's third point of why did G- Israel choose to reject the Messiah? Because they were disobedient and they were obstinate and their disobedience. Verses uh, sixteen to twenty-one, there, chapter ten. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah is so bold to say. And he goes to the end there. God says, "I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It's obstinate." Is how it's translated in other versions. And so if you look at Israel, and you look at the history, we understand, right, that Israel was just this sort of disobedient nation, and you can see those cycles throughout the New Testament, where they're, they're close to God, and things are good, and they go, nah, and they just kind of walk away, and they turn towards idols, and things get bad, and it gets really bad, and they go, okay, we're going to turn back towards God, and they get back toward God, and there's this restoration, and then it goes, and it's just this cycle that goes over and over and over, and we see that in the Old Testament, But Paul clues us in, it was more than just that. It was this disobedience and this obstinance towards the good news, towards the gospel message. And how is that? Because they wanted to have their own plan of salvation. They didn't want God's plan of salvation. Paul is saying, God's plan of salvation has always been there. It's always been shown. It's open to the spiritual children. They just wanted their own. They wanted to go down their path of destruction, of good works. I was trying to think about that, like how we could relate to this. And if you've got kids, you probably can understand, like if parents, have you ever given your kid, like, hey, here is a clear instruction of a thing that I want you to do. And your kid, like, just kind of trying to do it, but like in a different way, where you're like, hey, uh, I want you to sweep the floor in this room here, and with, you know, with the broom. And you come back, and they've got like a a piece of paper or something, and they're kind of, you know, kind of doing it, but not really. You're just like, You're just disobedient and absent. I go, get the broom. No, I like the paper. My kids have never done this, I promise. (laughs) And so the Jews were offended. They were offended by Jesus. They were offended by Jesus. And I love Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There in Luke 7. And we can understand offended in our culture, right? That's probably the word of the year in 2018. Offended. I'm offended. And the Jews were offended. And they were offended by Jesus because he was the stumbling stone that was blocking their path of good works. And when they became offended, they decided to reject him. And rejection is obstinate disobedience. So they were disobedient and obstinate. So Paul explains, why did Israel choose to reject the Messiah? It's for these three reasons. Now I love, if you look elsewhere in the New Testament, it's not that this is the only place Paul says this. You go to Galatians, and in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul's talking and he he's like actually reprimanding Peter because Peter has kind of fallen back into these old ways. And I love how the message paraphrased this. He says, we Jews know we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. He's talking about we Jewish Christians. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it. And we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. And that's probably still true, right? Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. I just love how that paraphrases that and expresses Paul's heart. Now, last week, we had this other thought, too. Put this up on the screen. We had this thought that, hey, if God is all-powerful, and we've been talking about that, and Paul was building that up in the first nine chapters of Romans, that God is all-powerful, and God is perfectly just. And therefore, because He's all-powerful, and because He's perfectly just, He's not obligated by anything I say or do or choose. I don't have any power over God. We said, wow, how wonderful and awe inspiring that he should extend the promise of reconciliation through Jesus Christ to me, to us, to you. And so we're going to see today that this promise is extended to me. How? It's extended to me, it's extended to you by a choice. We had a choice. We have a choice to make. And so Paul has addressed why the Israel has rejected the Messiah, and now he turns his attention to this matter in chapter 10. And he answers this question, this question of, how does one accept and not reject Jesus? Which is probably one of the most important questions every single one of us can ask in our lives, right? How do I accept Jesus? If the path of works isn't going to get me there, how do I accept Jesus? Well, Paul answers it right here. Last week we saw that God is in complete control, right? Is God in complete control? Yes. By definition, he's God. He's all-powerful. He's in complete control. But we also know, we also see he wants relationship. And we see that to have a relationship, it requires choice. You can't have a relationship with a robot. You have to have a relationship with a person. And so there's there's a, a need for choice. And so God has made this. And so Paul says, hey, look, there's a choice. And here's how to make that choice. The first thing you do is you confess and you believe. Most of us have memorized this verse, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, it's very simple. And it has nothing to do with good works, does it? You can't even pretend to think that there's something about good works in there. Confess and believe... Well, confess means just to acknowledge. It means to own it personally. It means to not be afraid to say it. To not be afraid to say it. And believe is not just, as we say this often, it's not just an intellectual assent to the facts. They say, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's true, right? It's the difference between saying Jesus is God and saying Jesus is my God. That's the difference. There's an ownership of the truth, an ownership of yourself. The second thing Paul says is you have to accept the gospel with your heart. In verse 11 he says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, do you see that your life is broken by sin? the first question to ask yourself. Second question, do you agree there's no way to be reconciled to God without his intervention? If this is true, he said, there's no way, there's no way to just do enough good works and get there. And then do you accept that Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection is the only way to be reconciled to God? What does it mean to accept the gospel with your heart? It means that you would look at these questions and you would say, yes, yes, and Yes. If you can say yes and yes and yes, then you have accepted it with your heart. You have accepted the gospel with your heart. And so the third thing there, he says, is to call on the name of the Lord. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's in quotations because he's quoting from Joel, the book of Joel in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 32. Just to point out that, hey, look, this has always been part of the promise. This has always been part of the plan. This isn't something we just made up here. It's always been there. But let's be clear. Calling on the name of the Lord means calling on the name of Jesus, not just on the name of God. Well, what do I mean by that? There's some verses where the Scripture gives us some clarity on that, and from Jesus' own mouth, we see it in a few places. John 14, 7, Jesus says, If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Another place, Jesus, in John chapter 5, Jesus says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In John chapter 8, he says, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And then the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Calling on the name of the Lord means calling on the name of Jesus. And now we get right back to that thing at the beginning. Are you offended by the name of Jesus? So many are offended by the name of Jesus. This is why if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And so the summary of all this, how does one accept and not reject Jesus? We can accept Jesus, and God has given each one of us this opportunity personally. It's not corporate. We don't take it as a group. We don't take it as a nation. We don't take it as a church. You take it as a person. You take it individually. And so to do this, we realize, hey, I have to recognize that this is my response to God, not my control over God. It's my response to God, not my control over God. Why? Because I can't control God. God is all-powerful, and therefore, by definition, I can't control him. Because if I could control him, I'd have some power that he didn't have. We talked about that last week. So let's go back to the Jews. Why were they so... What was the problem with good works and obeying the law? Well, the problem is that when you hold to that view, you have this belief that your obedience somehow obligates God. It takes a control over God and you say, hey, I got control over you because I've done these good things. Look at me, I've done good things. Now you're obligated to respond to me. You're obligated to save me. You're obligated to let me into heaven. You're obligated to give me a good life. And again, if God is controlled by us in any way, then he's no longer all-powerful. and He's therefore no longer all-God. And so this is an age-old deception that we see in so many places, which is that I can control God by what I do. I can't control God by what I do, but that's a deception. It's a deception in one form here as we see it right in this passage. It's this idea of that my good deeds are going to get me to heaven. This is a deception. There's a deception. And the Jewish approach was, hey, we're going to obey this law, as Paul said there in Galatians, the greatest set of rules ever created. I'm just going to obey that greatest set of rules ever, and I'll be right with God. God has to respond to me. I've got control over God because I've done some good things. There's also kind of a, you've got to be careful of a Judaized Christian approach. What do you mean by that? A Judaized Christian? Where you can go, hey, yeah, I've received the good news, I've received the gospel, but now I've got to work, I've got to do good deeds so that God will be pleased with me and God will be obligated to me and God will bless me. I don't have control over God. God's all-powerful. God's all-powerful. Paul addresses that issue in Galatians chapter 1. And really, we get outside of the Jews, and we look at all the other religions. Like we're even probably going to see some today when we have this meeting with these guys. And you go to the other places, the Muslims, and the Buddhists, and the Hindus, and all other kinds of cults and other kind of groups. They're basically, basically when you boil it down, it's good works get me to God. Whoever God is in their view. It's I'm going to do good things, and God is going to be obligated to me because I've done these good things. And it's not just religious people. You even take irreligious people, secularists in our culture, right? And we set aside the ones who say, There is no God, and I'm not interested in that. But you go, Hey, do you believe in God? Yeah, I think there's probably a God. And you say, Okay, so if you die and you stand before God and you say, what? He says, Why should I let you into heaven? You say, What? Oh, because I'm a good person. Or I've done some good things. Or I volunteer at the Humane Society. Or whatever it is that you say. It's good works. God is obligated to me because I've done good works. And that is not true. That's what Paul is telling us. And we see this idea of I have control over God and the doctrine sneaks into churches in other ways as well and it gets so dangerous when we start to say hey God is obligated to me because if we take it and we put it into Christianity and we put it into the Bible it starts to wrap around that and it gets very confusing so always, always be aware of anyone who says you can do something that has control over God. Paul gives us a clear word against this and here's some verses, Romans 9 15-16 he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's not obligated by what we do. God is not obligated by what we do. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 said, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There's not a one-to-one correlation between good and my righteousness and God and my righteousness. It's not. I can't control it with my good works. This error really boils down to God must respond to me because I'm so good. But we know instead, God responds to us according to his perfect plan. I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Well, what's a straight path? I think any of us know what a straight path is, do we? None of us can see past the veil or the curtain that is this afternoon. We don't know what this afternoon or tomorrow brings, but God says, trust in me, do not lean on your own understanding, and I will make your path straight. He's not obligated to us. Our good works don't control him, but he responds. When we respond to God, he has a response. We don't control him. God is not controlled by us. He's given us the opportunity to respond to him. And for whatever reason, we go, I don't get it or I like it or not. And again, like we said last week, this is in some ways complicated stuff. And it's partly complicated because there's a God who is outside of space and time. And he's all powerful. And he set this up. And there's probably ways we can't even really understand it. But he set it up. We could praise him for this good news and the good news is this again when you confess and believe when you accept the gospel with your heart and when you call on the name of jesus then you are saved you are saved and you have god in you it's a free gift it has nothing to do with your works Confess and believe, accept the gospel, call on Jesus, and then you're saved, and God is in you. I love, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It belongs to God and not to us. And it's so cool that we have this choice and we accept Jesus, and it's not just like, oh yeah, that's good. Good for you. You got the gift. God says, I'll come live inside you right now. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Paul says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Until we get to heaven, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us when we confess and believe, accept the gospel, and call on Jesus. He doesn't come and live in us when we say, I'm going to do a bunch of good stuff or what I think is good stuff. We have to stumble on the stumbling stone. So let me close with this final thought. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Believing in Jesus Christ is the only way to God because that's how we get to choose God. It's how God, the awesome, all-powerful, outside of space and time, God has set it up so that we can have a relationship with Him. He says, you can choose me here in this way, personally. Everything else is just good works. Everything else is just me trying to control God, trying to control an all-powerful God, which doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the nation of Israel take it back to the beginning. That nation of Israel, they rejected Jesus because they wanted to trust in their own good works. They set up their rules. They set up their regulations. They set up all the things they were going to do, and they wanted to walk down that. And people today, us today, we're the same way. Whether we're Jewish or not Jewish, So many of us can be offended by Jesus. Why are we offended by Jesus? We can be offended by Jesus because we just want to trust in our own good works. We just think, I ought to be able to just get there. And God ought to be able to be obligated by the things I do. Paul tells us that's not how it is. God gives us a different way. He says, respond to me, believe, and be saved. It's that simple. And so if you've never done that, would you do that today? There's a chance. I'll pray and we'll close. God, we recognize first and foremost that you are all-powerful and you are mighty and you are the creator of the universe. I don't think any of us would be sitting here today and spending our Sunday on a beautiful fall day in Colorado sitting in a church singing songs and listening to the scripture if we didn't believe that you were that God. And that we could talk to you. And yet, God, because it is an age-old deception, we understand that so many of us have walked in in paths of good works for our lives. And if we turned and looked at ourselves and asked ourselves those questions of, okay, so I I die and I stand before you, God, and I say what, what you say, what why should I let you into heaven? And my response might be, because I'm a good person, or I've done some good things, or I went to church on a Sunday morning in September in Colorado. But God, you're interested in relationship. You're not interested in works. You're interested in relationship, and you've given us the opportunity to have a relationship with you. You've given us the opportunity to choose. You've given us the opportunity to choose. And so all we need to do is to confess. And we can just say, God, I confess that you are the Son of God. You are God. Jesus is your Son. He came to earth. He lived a sinless life. He died a death on the cross and paid the penalty for my sins. And I received that free gift, and I believe and I accept the gospel. I accept the good news. I see that my life is broken by sin. I see there's no other way to be reconciled to you, God, except by your intervention through Jesus. And I accept Jesus as that only way. Having done that, we just call on the name of Jesus. Say, Jesus, I receive you and come into my life. And that's what it takes to be right with God, to be right with you, Lord. Thank you that that's how simple it is. We don't have to walk through a series of steps and patterns and and rituals and hope we never go off the rails. It's a one-time thing, and it's done, and we're saved for eternity and right with you. God, thank you for providing that clarity in your word and for presenting it to us. Be with us here as as we go out from this place today. In Jesus' name.